0: Hello everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of Mythic Mission with Professor Michael Jehosky. Today's episode is my interview with Dr. Jason M. Baxter about his book, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis, How Great Books Shape a Great Mind. Let me go ahead and introduce our guest for today. Jason Baxter is an Associate Professor of Fine Arts and Humanities at Wyoming Catholic College, a speaker, author, and college professor. He writes on the relevance of medieval thought, literature, and art, especially as it relates to medieval mysticism, Dante, and C.S. Lewis. He is the author of The Infinite Beauty of the World, Dante's Encyclopedia and the Names of God, and A Beginner's Guide to Dante's Divine Comedy, which I highly recommend. I've been reading through that one as well. You can learn more about our guest today at his website, which is www.jasonandbaxter.com. Don't forget to put https colon backslash backslash in front of www. I will also have the link in the show notes as usual, as well as a link to InterVarsity Press, where you can purchase his book, which is due out on Tuesday, March 15th. So this is a uh, forthcoming publication. I want to thank Dr. Baxter for joining me today, but also Krista Clayton at University Press for sending me an advanced copy of the book, uh, which I thoroughly appreciate and enjoyed and devoured it pretty much in a day. So I am really excited about today's episode because it also crisscrosses with my own uh, project that I'm writing a second book right now on the Narniad, C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, and uh, seeing the, those books as a supposal. Uh, or parable, as I'm arguing, which are sacramental stories, and so we're going to be hearing more about that in the near future. For me, if you'd like to learn more about what I'm up to these days and be part of a community of growing a growing community of scholars, laypersons, Christians, um, and uh, even uh, folks from outside the Christian community that are also welcome, please sign up for our Patreon. Uh, you can become a patron of Mythic Mission and join us on the mission at www.patreon.com backslash Mythic Mission, one word. I've uh, updated the tiers with some new perks, and those are always changing and getting cooler by the day. Uh, right now, uh, for as little as $5 a month, you can get a Mythic Mission coffee mug and have coffee on us, as well uh, with the cool Mythic Mission logo on it, by the way, as well as um, starting at as little as $3 a month, and then every tier going up to $15 a month. Uh, We have three, five, ten, and fifteen dollar tiers. You can get access to our private Mythic Mission Facebook group where you can one on one with me and dialogue, find out about what I'm up to, get updates about my own book and other scholars that are working on things as well. So that's a great way to kind of stay in the know. Um, I am still giving out stickers uh, to certain patrons at certain tiers, uh, coffee mugs. one-on-one zoom lessons that you can gain access to occasionally i will be doing a a signed paperback copy of my first book on tolkien so there's a lot of really cool perks and you will get live question and answer sessions with me uh, once a month once i get enough people uh, either on the facebook group or some other platform such as zoom or you know google something uh like google meet i think it is We'll figure that out when we get to it. So there are lots of great perks. We encourage you to join us on the mission and support our ministry and what we're doing here for God and his kingdom. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Uh, I am um, going to just give you a brief uh, overview of some of the topics to expect uh, on today's uh, fourth episode of season two. And uh, let me just give you two of my favorites. We're going to be talking um, about the medieval worldview and mindset and how that impacted the thinking and worldview of C.S. Lewis, uh, especially with the medieval passion for unity and proportion. Uh, as a sub-question under this uh, chapter one question, kind of goes with chapter one of Dr. Baxter's book, we'll be talking about sacramentalism, uh, which, as I said, is a topic I'm uh, reading about and writing about quite a bit these days. And uh, another one of my favorite subjects is going to be Dante. I haven't read him in uh, many years, and uh, Dr. Baxter's book has a uh, reinvigorated me and has uh, given me another um, good excuse as if I needed another one, right? I should be reading Dante regularly as a humanities guy. uh, And I um, want to recommend his introduction to Dante's work, the beginner's guide uh, that Dr. Baxter has written. And also, uh, if you are a medievalist and you love medieval literature, if you love Dante, definitely pay attention and take notes in today's episode. I'm sure he's going to have a lot of things uh, worth uh, hearing and uh, jotting down. So, just two uh, topics of uh, about eight or nine that we have that we're going to talk about today. I look forward to it. I hope you do as well. Thanks again for uh, listening. And please join us on our mission at patreon.com or check us out at www.mythicmission.com to learn more about me, the podcast, and what else I'm up to. Thank you and God bless. Uh, and thank you, Dr. Baxter, for joining me.
1: Thank you. I've been looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, me too, me too. So let's, um, let's just start with why did you write this book now? Uh, and could you speak a little bit to the personal relevance of C.S. Lewis to you?
1: Yes, I don't think I understood why Lewis was so relevant to me until I wrote the book. Um, I mean, I probably like a lot of your, your listeners and watchers, I have read Lewis from the time I was a teenager with admiration, both his For me, it was actually his nonfiction before his fiction, but uh, loved his sermons and found them. I think I had a response to Lewis, how Lewis describes in Surprised by Joy, his own response to G.K. Chesterton. And in which he, as a young atheist, was surprised that he actually liked Chesterton so much and concluded later, years later, that he thought it was his holiness where he says that about George MacDonald, right? But both MacDonald and and uh, Chesterton had this kind of quality of, of of holiness, and I think it's that's what has attracted me to to Lewis. But Lewis provides a particular explanation for this. He he, he oftentimes describes literature as a landscape, or as a breathing an atmosphere, or as weather, or as um, you know. Uh, sort of yeah, walking through a a landscape with what he calls wise passivity. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's why I've loved him so much is that he's not just a conceptual writer. He doesn't just give opinions or particular um, correct ideas, but manages to flesh them out, even in his nonfiction, in literary and rhetorical worlds, such that as I've been increasingly saying about uh, Lewis, but also about Dante, it's a way in which ideas and truth gets into your veins and pulses. It's an embodiment, a creation of a landscape, creation of a mythic atmosphere. Mm-hmm. That's why I think probably has driven my admiration for him. But it wasn't until I wrote this book that I was actually able to find the vocabulary for this experience that I've had since I was a teenager.
0: hmm yeah, that's, that's very powerful. Uh, and, and one of the topics that I wanted to ask you about today is uh, one which I share uh, a deep appreciation from uh, Lewis's writings about the, uh, I think Michael Ward referred to it once as a Donna Gality. maybe Lewis himself did uh, an atmosphere, you know, you, mm-hmm. you have a chapter about breathing the Narnian air, which I love. Uh, and that quality, which is a, a concrete experiential quality we get from myth. Is a particularly powerful draw, so I'm glad that you mentioned that because I share I share that uh, affection for that aspect of Lewis's yes. work as well. Um, so, you know, I, I found it was also a very unique book. By the way, I wanted to hold up the book so people could see see it here. Yeah, we've got matching copies. There we go. <laughs> so, um, I've uh, I've marked this thing up uh, probably more than most books I've marked up recently. I've got Underline and uh, lots of uh, later. Uh, green <laughs> highlights in uh, later parts of the book here. Um, I, I wanted to uh, ask you why you felt it was particularly relevant to writing this book now, because, you know, a lot of my students in my classrooms find the medieval world. This will be a segue into our next question too. Yeah. the medieval worldview, the medieval period, the middle Ages, just a drag. So mm. why, why, and that's sad of course, but why, why write this book now?
1: Yeah, no, I think, well, I think, this is an, I mean, Lewis thought in 1954, when he took this special chair made for him at Cambridge, the chair of medieval and Renaissance studies or or medieval Renaissance literature, he thought that the old myth in which we call the middle ages, the dark ages was finally beginning to crumble. Mm. Um, And he's not wrong about uh, very often or about a lot of things, but on this he was, Mm. the myth has survived that um, you know that the just to conflate the middle ages with the dark ages right i think is you know kind of kind of says it all um yeah. and i say at the beginning of breathing Narnia in the air this on more than one occasion lewis made passing comments about the magical properties of living in Narnia um when the pavnci children had lived in Narnia long enough that if ever they remembered their life in this world it was only as one remembers a dream mm. they spoke in a new high mode of discourse and courtly cadences suited to their occupations. When we read that in fiction, we love it. Um, but we forget that, new, that Lewis derived these types of concepts and these types of notions from the Middle Ages. So my hope was to basically use Lewis to introduce uh, lovers of Lewis, and there's so many of them, to a wider circle of friends. I'm just thinking, I mean, you're working on this right now, mm-hmm. um, Michael. I mean, everyone loves to know a little bit more about the Inklings, right? The, the strange and mysterious Charles Williams or the, the brilliant but difficult to read Owen Barfield and of course Tolkien and as well as the other sort of minor, minor characters. We love to, uh, Humphrey Carpenter's book, right? In which he tries to reconstruct that chapter of what an Inklings meeting felt like sitting yeah. in the back of the bird and the baby, right? It's just, it's a delight. It's a delight not just to know Lewis, but to know Lewis's friends because we know Alan Jacobs has a cool chapter on this in his book. We know how driven by friendship Lewis was. Lewis mm-hmm. considered himself sort of Jupiterian in his in his uh, astrological sign, right? Mm-hmm. But that he had this kind of warm, affectionate, magnanimous, friend-building, friend-loving personality. Yeah. What is fun to discover about Lewis is that Lewis didn't. Exclude the circle of his friends to the merely living, <laughs> but like Chesterton practicing a democracy of dead, mm. seemingly developed real affection for old Boethius and Virgil and these these dead authors, such that I think we could almost think of Lewis's medieval authors, especially Dante, especially Boethius, especially you know probably Plato to a certain extent Aquinas, some of the 17th century Anglican theologians as extended members of the Inklings that Lewis would have loved to have spent time with Thomas Traherne, oh, yeah, if yeah. only they just didn't happen to be dead.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. that that's, uh, I, I, I got that sense that, you know, uh, and I, I recall what you mentioned about uh, Chesterton's uh, Democracy of the Dead, this long chain of, uh, you know, heroes, literary, philosoph- philosophical, theological heroes that Lewis had and the other Inklings had is kind of an extension of their group. It's a, it's a lovely idea. And, uh, and, and yes, thank you. I think we can see that the medieval uh, worldview of Lewis is very relevant and that this, um, this perspective hasn't died out. And uh, like, much like many predictions about the dying out of religion too, I think was, was wrong, as you said, that this is still with us and we should uh, take a closer look as to why this is such an important perspective on the world. In fact, in the next unit of my intro classes, I'm doing a bit of a introduction on what we can learn from the medieval perspective of the cosmos and how that can just change the way that we think about all sorts of things so so valuable very important uh, yeah, and on I, that note
1: i'm oh, sorry ahead. i was just remembering i was just remembering another passage i think your, yeah. your, your readers might uh, or your listeners might enjoy please um at the beginning of chapter one mm. uh the lost cathedral mm-hmm. uh this is lewis in the popular imagination as lewis joked more than once the term middle ages evokes a misty blend of knights castles witch trials torture devices armor superstitious peasants covered in dirt and maybe a dragon and princess thrown into boot need it be said that was not how lewis envisioned the time period um but like you said i think a period of like incredible intellectual sophistication which even though Again, as Lewis talks about in his own sort of meditation on kind of science and theology, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. even though some of the particular beliefs have been um, exploded, the approach to the world that is in terms of modeling and in terms of of thinking about this mythic imagination are actually shockingly uh, shockingly relevant to contemporary uh, philosophy of science discourses.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's let's talk, let's about, talk that. about that. I'd like to uh, to ask your opinion on, uh, of course, what what this what what you meant. I think in the introduction by the long Middle Ages, and then to tell us a little bit about Lewis as a medievalist and what exactly is entailed by that. Uh, so, can we get into some more detail? Sure.
1: Right. I mean, I think you know the easiest you know definition for Middle Ages would just be that which happens. You could say. After the death of Boethius, uh, but before the invention of the printing press, mm-hmm. or something like 500 AD to 1500 AD, right. but Lewis had a more interesting and more daring and more ambitious uh, definition, which he talks about again in this Cambridge address, the De Descriptione Temporum, or on the um, drawing up of time periods, right? Or um, so Lewis thought that despite the differences. He makes some funny and outrageous claims. A an Egyptian pharaoh might have had more in common with Jane Austen, who's writing in the early eighteen hundreds, than Jane Austen did with someone living in the nineteen fifties. That is a single century of separation. More had happened. Um, more in terms of advances of not just the creation of machines, but I guess you know, well, since then, even we could even talk about more, but the sort of internalization of machines, mm-hmm. such that our imaginations are kind of machine scapes, our relationships to the world are so mediated for good or for ill, um, that this had affected our, our very imagination such that we had less in common with Jane Austen than Jane Austen did with an Egyptian pharaoh. So this mm-hmm. is the long Middle ages from, you know, from Babylonian literature, like Gilgamesh, all the way up to at least the 18th century, but even into the early 19th century. Mm-hmm. And what Lewis thought that they all had in common was this background belief, this sense that the natural world wasn't just a machine, wasn't just a bunch of inert matter obeying chemical and physical laws, but it had a kind of uh, theological significance to it as well, or to use... Um, you know, one of his favorite terms, one of your favorite terms, it had a kind of sacramentalism to it, a kind of iconicity, um, uh, a type of symbolism to it, that even in its natural operations, it was groaning to express, um, which sounds like a good, good quotation from the letter to Romans, right? But groaning mm-hmm. to express something which was behind it. Yeah. And that idea is not only sort of disappeared from our cultural imagination, but it has disappeared so much that it seems absurd or, I don't know, hippie or new age or something to even yes. posit it. That's, I think, what Lewis thought was really behind the long Middle Ages in which you could accept the iconicity of the natural world.
0: Mm. That's, that's beautiful. It reminds me of something you say later in the book. It's probably second to last chapter or such, but uh, I almost had it. Oh, no, here it is, page 113. Uh, I think this is How to Pray to a Medieval God. That's chapter six. You say... This idea of uh, something higher behind the lower and the higher participating in the lower sacramentalism, and this is a, a very challenging idea to people today that the invisible, the spiritual, the immaterial could be, you say here, uh, heavier than matter. That's that's a, a foreign idea to uh, most people today. They find that pretty absurd. You know, that uh, yes. isn't, isn't stuff like my cup here filled with water, isn't that more solid than you know uh the universal cup of we, cupiness if we get into plato i guess right uh right. you know yeah. chairness i think was the example i was given in college anyway um yeah I, that that's a challenge professors concept. of
1: philosophy are always dragging chairs into their lectures <laughs> i know it shows the sort of standard of entertainment that they have
0: it yeah. is tables chairs i think those were the two the two chief uh, tables imageries. and chairs are
1: as exciting as a professor of philosophy can get yes
0: yeah yeah we we do our best <laughs> um so i think uh you know, this kind of gets us into the, the next topic I'd like to discuss a little bit more. Could we uh, expand a bit on sacramentalism and what is meant by that, maybe taking up with it the challenge of this uh, this notion that the that which is invisible is more eternal, it's heavier, it's more substantial? Yeah. yeah.
1: The weight of glory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this is one of the many instances in which Lewis is a little tentative, a little hesitant to hazard his own theoretical explanation. And what he does so much, he sort of clears, he clears away the misconceptions. And he just wants us to be able to take the uh, the a medieval approach to sacramentalism seriously, or at the very least, to put it in highly negative terms. He doesn't want us to merely dismiss it. And so, I mean, you'd love to, you'd love to sit down with him and um, be one of his, his buddies, one of the inklings and begin to ask him some of the particulars. And for example, in his Narnia, um, toward the end of the last battle, he talks about, you know, the further up and further in chapter, he talks about coming into the real Narnia um, and how there's this real world, which stands behind this one. And this one is just a faint glimmer. You'd love to ask him. Could you go into the details in that? I mean, in what particular way? And it's it's not something that I think he he he's very he's very hesitant, very tentative about it. Remember in the weight of glory, right? He sort of half confesses that he feels almost sort of indecent talking about the aches, the eternal aches and wound of the heart. So I think to to get him into the particulars, um, <laughs> it, it would be a lot of fun, but not something we can do. But yeah. in general, in transposition his lovely uh sermon transposition lewis of course likens that um he he wants to use the example of a symphony i i have i have Mahler on my mind just because it's these huge symphonies he scores them for sometimes you know three four hundred uh different instrumentalists they're very complicated in a world before exact recordings and even to say in a world before you know uh records or even gramophones what do you do well, you have to have a talented musician create a you know a piano version of that, a piano transcription, a piano transposition. If you know the symphony, when someone plays the piano, you can reconstruct the complexity of the higher language of the or of the orchestra in your mind. If you don't, you can't. Right. This is Lewis's, I think, one of his sort of favorite metaphors for how to explain what our ancestors, what the medievals, what the pre-moderns thought about the spiritual world, that it's this higher level language which does its best to express itself in the lower level language of uh, of natural phenomena. We're quoting Boethius, time is the imitation of eternity. Right. Such that this world oftentimes, this I think connects to his own joy moments, feels saturated, feels super saturated, Um, sometimes a a bright sunny day with uh, with family and friends feels more than just the sort of recreational pleasure of it. But it feels that it's as if gesturing is too full, too saturated to be explained by its own natural causes. Mm -hmm. Well, Lewis would just come in and say, don't you know what our ancestors said? Of course, time imitates eternity. This Mm -hmm. own natural world like Anglo-Saxon, trying to translate a Latin text, right? It's kind of a big funneling process because you have a huge vocabulary trying to get into a small one. Right. He's doing the best it can to gesture at that, which is behind it. That's something like what Lewis admired so much. And to my knowledge, I'm not exactly sure if he ever you know, fully embraced the, the theoretical descriptions of a Plato or of a Plotinus or a Proclus or a Dionysius, the Areopagite. I don't know if that's what he thought he was doing. Because he thought of himself, as I argue, more like a British Boethius Mm -hmm. who is less concerned with making razor sharp distinctions. Most professors like to talk about difference, right? But Lewis wanted to talk about sameness and unity. Um, And he thought, I think he, he thought he was imitating Boethius in that way. So just sort of creating a space in which this is maybe more attractive than you thought, and more relevant than you thought. Mm-hmm. I think the key term for that is the transposition and thinking about that gargantuan symphony and all yeah. this complicated orchestration trying to fit itself into a mere piano key I, I or, love or a mere piano piano um, set of keys. Right.
0: Yeah. No. That's that's a, an excellent uh, description of sacramentalism. I think gives us those those concrete images we can hold in our mind to help us. Uh, imagine and grasp the more abstract points there, uh, which uh, it's a delight to think about this subject, and I'd love to talk about it more, but there's so many great uh, topics I want to get to today in your book. So I want to move into a related topic. Um, I, I get the sense from your, your book and others that, of course, Lewis saw you know myth as a sacramental kind of story, um, and that uh, he loved this particular quality you alluded to earlier about the Narnian air, the atmosphere, the Donegality, or the the Londonness of London. I think he says, you know, the, the, that sort of je ne sais quoi of where you are. Could we talk about why he loved this this idea that may seem kind of trivial to some people? I I, I don't, but uh, could we speak to that atmosphere of the story and why Lewis felt it so important?
1: Yes, the thing itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah at, at one point, he says. For me, reading a novel is not about the characters. It's more than that. It's more that for me, a novel or any work of art is primarily a thing, an object, enjoyed for its color, proportions, atmosphere, its flavor, the odyssey-ishness of the odyssey or the lyrishness of King Lear. Yeah, and then and, and then just on the next page, I have his great letter to Joan in which Lewis, what a saint, patiently receiving all these manuscripts from his admirers, reads these stories from these kids, right? And then writes them like little critiques. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Walter Hooper says he spent two to three hours a day responding to these letters. Um, Mm -hmm. And anyway, so reads this little story and writes this gentle, loving letter back Mm -hmm. to her and says, look, you do a good job sort of describing the outside of it, but you never describe what he calls the thing itself. Mm-hmm. If you become a writer, you'll be trying to describe the thing all your life. And lucky if out of dozens of books, one or two sentences, just for a moment, come near to getting it across. And so I think you're exactly right. The, the, the question of the power of literature as achieving or as seeking the thing itself, the lyricness of Lear or the Odyssey-ishness of the Odyssey or that elusive essential quality. That's the brilliance of literature, but of course it's also related to this sacramental imagination because in both systems, the particulars, the details, the plots, the descriptions of the characters, right? The descriptions of the objects in their room in a good writer are always meant to point in this atmospheric way Mm. toward that spiritual quality, which is behind it. Mm. He's got a cool essay called Christianity and literature, um, which, you know, of course, in which he says that the difference between a modern writer and uh, uh, an old fashioned, which is for him a compliment, Christian writer is the Christian writer is always trying to communicate an eternal virtue, um, an eternal quality. And he'll just use his story quite contentedly to do that. It doesn't have to be the most original story in the whole universe. He just has to create this magical weather, this magical atmospheric quality of, of breathing and air in which that eternal quality can, as I've said earlier, get into the veins and get into the nerves and get into the pulses. He thought that in part the reason that Christianity had been so repulsive to him as a child is because it had this strange air, the strange sterilized medical air, right? Mm-hmm. This sort of Sunday school reverence in which you learn your 17 opinions and 17 correct ideas. But Lewis thought, right, if you could use that atmospheric creating quality of mythopoeia and render these eternal values, breathable, smellable, tasteable, feelable, then you could in some sense, protect Christianity from becoming an excessively moralistic or excessively dogmatic religion. I think we oftentimes, unwittingly and unthinkingly, think that Christianity is a philosophy. Yeah, that, that Christianity is a set of correct opinions and a set of moral injunctions. Uh, the the Cambridge theologian David Ford says that Christianity. Uh, does has for too long done too much of its work in the indicative and imperative moods, mm. by which he means grammatically moods that describe and moods that command. Right. But in 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 ancient languages as well as in modern Romance languages, there's another mood. There's the subjunctive. Mm. Um, the, uh, the that has the quality of the considering the hypothetical, the possible, the the the, the mood of aspiration and longing and dreaming and hoping that that used to be an important component of Christian literature. And the reason it's so important, I think, to, uh, to recover that is because Christianity in its essence, the glory of God doesn't going back to transposition, doesn't, can't, can't translate itself perfectly into the lower language because it's the higher language. And thus you need to protect Christianity from thinking that possessing 17 correct opinions is the essence of what it means to be a Christian.
0: Yes. Oh, beautifully put. And, and this reminds me of two things. Uh, you mentioned the, um, and I think it was re, uh, re-entitled something else, but the kappa element in romance, the, the whole idea of the kappa element, kappa being the first Greek letter to was it krypton, the, the word for mystery?
1: Yeah, the hidden, um, yeah.
0: The hidden, um, which I, I think you've also described really beautifully here. And then to your most recent point, it reminds me uh, the idea that we, we mustn't let Christianity just become a set of propositions. It's first and foremost a myth before it's a fact. A myth become, became fact, his essay, uh, where he says, we mustn't be ashamed of the mythical radiance that rests upon our theology. And I, I think that's, uh, that's a, right. a good quote to mention here. And I think a lot of Christians are, and they've lost uh, sight of that. And it seems that Lewis did as well. Uh, and mm-hmm. when it was restored, he was able to see Christianity uh, as a more vibrant thing instead of a, I like your word, sterile. For a lot of us, that's how it was growing up. Um, and it, uh, right. Right. you know, you have to strip it of those, what does he say, the Sunday school stained glass associations, which I, I right. love that he, he mentioned yeah. that.
1: Or as yeah. he says, are sort of images of uh, of heaven, these fatuous images of heaven, of angels right. sitting around in white cloaks and, okay. and you know, strumming on, you know, sitharas, Right? Who wants yeah. to go there?
0: No, right, exactly. I mean, there's
1: no reason there's like a, you know, like a cliche and a, a, a trope in contemporary society, I want to go to hell with my friends, you know, surf or something, <laughs> do something fun. I mean, so in a way, myth protects us from that. Um, ironically, myth protects us from that excessive liberalization.
0: Yeah,
1: and the, uh, the drying up of our imaginations. And as again, as Lewis says that, in our world, um, all the negatives have an unfair advantage over the positives. Yeah, That is, we know that heaven doesn't involve chocolate and we know that heaven doesn't involve marriage and we know that heaven doesn't involve surfing. Right. And so when you sort of delete all those things, it just seems like a bunch of angels sitting around in white clouds playing, you know, set rest, which sounds awful. Yes, it does. Thus, the opportunity for myth to come back in and create a sense of gravity, a sense of weightiness of the glory and I suppose I'm anticipating a little bit where our conversation is going to go, but that's why he loved Dante so much. Yes, because he thought yeah. Dante created something which, as he said of Lewis, sorry, as he said of Tolkien, which right. burned like how do you say, it? cut like swords and burned like cold iron. Yeah. It yeah, had a sense of gravity and weightiness to it, and yeah. to be able to do that for heaven, which for almost all of us is so evaporated and dissipated is a tremendous, uh, tremendous gift.
0: Yeah, and achievement, I think that Lewis uh, did accomplish. So very, very nice. Okay, um, before we get to Dante, and I'm looking forward to that, and we may have to skim a few questions, we'll see. I want to be mindful of your time. Um, But I wanted to ask you next, kind of switching gears here, getting away from the imagination, the idea of sacramentalism, to talk a little bit about why Lewis really, I mean, you say he hated cars, I didn't know that, Uh, and you know, why he felt the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution kind of ushered in a new period of, um, I'm sorry, a period of new ignorance. And this is yes. chapter three of your book. Yes.
1: Right. Yeah. And I'm drawing it from the title to Lewis, his introductory uh, chapter to his 16th century or history of 16th century English literature, excluding drama, in which he's got a delightful title, which he describes the Renaissance as a period of new learning and new ignorance. Hmm. The new learning, I think, is, you know, kind of obvious for everyone. Yeah, it's instruments, right? Telescopes, microscopes, uh, accurate clocks, pendulums, vacuum pumps, spectacles. <laughs> um, I mean, optics. It's a new period in which we sort of use instruments and quantitative measurements to make predictions about motion, right? Think, you know, Galileo and Leonardo are obsessed with trajectories, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Predictions of motions, um, as well as sort of using our new new gathered data from say Tycho Brahe's uh, telescope to create new models of the world. We all know that, right? This is sort of thing that we're taught in elementary school. I think Lewis thought that the new ignorance came Well, maybe in two ways, one, by believing humanist propaganda and two, and this is very uh, I think this is very much borrowing from Owen Barfield, Mm. a forgetfulness of inwardness, forgetting inwardness. That's how Barfield put it. That is when we I mean, just this is not going to be a perfect analogy. Think about how nowadays we wear, you know, watches which measure our pulse and tell us how we're sleeping, and um, and we measure our popularity by our friends and our likes, and I mean, I think especially people in the business of promoting right um, online material. Um, How many sales do I get? We become sort of so quantified, so concerned with the externalities and the exteriority, um, and these kind of quantifiable goods that. It's possible, it's possible for us to forget a kind of inwardness. And I think you and I, if we you know, talk to our students about this, this is the one time I see my Gen Z students sit on the edge of their chair because they know the difference between their socials and their images and how they sort of project themselves into this virtual space and how they actually feel about themselves or whether or not they actually have the capacity for intimacy or, or deep friendship, all things of course, which they crave. Yeah. but they feel almost sort of ensnared in these kind of projected images. Mm-hmm. If you can take that, obviously Lewis is not yet living in the great age of social media, um, mm-hmm. but if you could take that sort of idea, Lewis felt it already beginning in the 1500s and 1600s. That is this sort of, and, and, and I think, again, he, I think he's getting this from his best buddy Barfield, right? Mm-hmm. That is already beginning to move into this aspect of externality in which I forget to ask qualitative questions about inwardness you can think about this playing out in relationships of course right martin buber talks about the importance of the iu relationship or the prayerful relationship with our relationship to god and barfield even has some crazy ideas about a sense of inwardness or participation with other types of creatures Mm -hmm. but we tend to think of them as mathematical inert objects sitting in a cartesian grid which if we apply pressures to them we're still Newtonians. If we apply pressure to them, we cause them to move and we can predict their motions. Thus a loss of inwardness. I think that's what drives Lewis the most and sort of frightens him the most yeah. of, um, and hence the new ignorance.
0: Yeah.
1: As well as the belief of humanist propaganda. He right. cites one example of a student. Uh, I think this is in the Cambridge uh, inaugural address. One example of a student who had read loads of medieval poetry and yet when he sat down to an exam, he wrote, he wrote that um, Thomas White was the first one to struggle ashore from the tempestuous seas of the dark ages. And Lewis is really puzzled about this. Wait, you, you've read medieval poetry, right? You've read Roman de la Rose, right? You've read Jean de Mon. you've read Dante, and they are highly artificial, formal, gorgeous, gem-like gardens. Mm. How can you describe that as the tempestuous? So I think in some sense, that's another form of new ignorance. Yeah. the chronological snobbery of oh, us yeah. assuming just because uh, this is, I'm going to anachronize this a little bit, but just because our ancestors didn't have iPhones in their pockets that they didn't possess a type of depth of wisdom. That's a new ignorance as well. Absolutely. The loss of the sapiential quality of yeah. living uh, for us, right? Knowledge is expertise is right. being able to predict trends and to know facts. Whereas for our ancestors, they thought there was a heart component. It was mm-hmm. wisdom It was um, maybe even contemplative in some situations. That's what evaporated when the new learning caused the new ignorance. Yeah. Oh, beautiful.
0: And uh, it reminded me of something you say at the beginning of chapter three uh, that Lewis writes. um, I think it's in Surprised by Joy. He says uh, about cars that that it annihilates space. Yes. I, I read that a couple of times and I'm like, what? And then he says, it does. And I'm like, yeah, it does. And I, I cannot stop thinking about it now when I'm in the car and I'm thinking, wow, um, this might be quite quite a journey like uh, Frodo took into the old forest, you know, if I weren't actually traveling 55 miles per hour in a vehicle. And, you know, all of that, you, you lose so much. You lose so much out on observing the world, observing people. We, we like to talk about people watching. And just with that those two words, I, I started thinking about a lot of different things and um, another, another thing that's been lost. So, well. Yes. Something that I no longer want to lose touch with uh, as a great segue is Dante. And uh, thank you for writing such a beautiful chapter on Dante's uh, divine comedy, uh, which I I know I'm I'm skipping over one of our questions. If we have time, we'll come back to But I wanted to make sure that we got to this one. Um, So this is a chapter five question. So I I said to you, uh, you know, I've not read Dante in years. I'm a little rusty. But this chapter really made me want to go back. So I bought your other book. um, Oh, cool. Yeah, introducing Dante and I, I've also, um, got Mark Musa's, I think, translation of it that I'm, I'm working through currently and kind of getting through, yeah, yeah. Getting, getting back into it. Um, I had no idea that Dante loved, I'm sorry, that CS Lewis, I'm sure Dante would have loved Lewis, but Lewis loved Dante so much. Uh, why? And, uh, let's start just there. That's a very broad question, but, um, you know, you say it's a counter spell too. Lewis kind of thought of it that way. So let's talk about that.
1: Yeah. Yes, well, the epigram to chapter five, as you mentioned, Lewis says this extraordinary thing. I think Dante's poetry, the greatest of all poetry, I have read. And then he says something really funny and really curious. Yet when it's at its highest pitch of excellence, I hardly feel that Dante has very much to do. Dante's the greatest, but also it was the, it was easier for him to write poetry. Huh. There is a curious feeling that the great poem is writing itself that the tiny figure of the poet is merely giving the gentlest guiding touch here and there to energies which for the most part spontaneously group themselves and perform the delicate evolutions which make up the comedy wow so i think i mean the first thing is that's funny sort of funny backhanded compliment right dante you're a great poet but it would have been easy to do it right it's like going up to the top of a mountain and touching a stone which is you know already precariously placed on another and it rolls down the hill that's that's easy you know, the, the difficulty is carrying the stone up, right? That's, that's modernity for Lewis. Uh-huh.
0: Um,
1: so I think it, it already goes back to the first part of our conversation. Mm-hmm. In a sacramental world, as I say, physics is, a, is prayer. Understanding the natural, uh, just, just recording the natural operations has a kind of theological saturated quality. Mm-hmm. If that's the case, and then if Dante is just, you know, you know, a B minus journalist, but describes that, you know, the, the, um, the cosmic image, right? The, the model, the medieval model, as Lewis calls it. Then he's already created, um, if he's a B minus journalist who just does that, he's created an A minus poem, mm-hmm. right? Just to begin with, precisely because of that sense of sacramentality, that sense of saturatedness that we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. But as Lewis kind of continues to meditate on this. And this is, um, this is a surprisingly good and interesting scholarly article that Lewis wrote. Uh, and and he, he did it in two different, in two different uh, versions, but similes in Dante. Mm-hmm. Lewis goes through the last 11, the called Conti, right? These little 150 line bits of poetry. Mm-hmm. He goes through the last 11 Conti of Paradiso and he ca- and he highlights just like a, uh professor johasky right he highlights in green every time that dante <laughs> uses a simile and then he classified them into different types of similes and he make draw some kind of you know cool conclusions from this but the most common type of simile and this is this surprises everyone you're in heaven right what type of simile do you use music fire light right? You know, perfume, something lofty, right? No, Mm -hmm. but the most common simile are are crafts, trades um, from everyday life, Um, Mm -hmm. guilds, dirt under the fingers, right? Straining muscles to achieve something or cleverness and using tools to accomplish a craft. Mm -hmm. And meditating on that, Dante said, or Lewis says, aha, that's why I love Dante so much. Because the closer he gets to the ultimate beatific vision, the thing which is more elusive of my rationality and my senses than anything else in the world, the more he uses these heavy, laborious images from the everyday trades um, and other things too, but like, um, actually in ways that reflect the beginning of his little essay on uh, the atomic bomb. Right? Mm-hmm. He says, we shouldn't be huddled together like sheep just waiting to get blown up, but we should be doing concrete real things, throwing darts and bars with our friends and laughing over pints and bathing the babies and playing tennis and listening to good music and, and reading good books and doing earthly, concrete, heavy things. So to, to our surprise as moderns, to lose his own surprise, Dante does that, has this grittiness, this textured quality, this embodied weight, the weight of glory the closer and closer that he gets to the great beatific vision. And in this way, Lewis thought Dante was counterbalancing our world's tendency, which gives the negatives, as we said earlier, gives the negatives, all of the uh, advantages over the positives. And that's why he loved Dante so much. Oh, that's,
0: that's wonderful. Uh, And I think this is perhaps I misunderstood, but what you mean uh, a few times in your book where you say that language was more, uh, concrete and abstract in the middle ages. And it, from, from, you know, even a poet like Dante is, is that kind of getting closer to what you meant by that, the, the idea that language is weightier, but also, you know, it, it captures more of the thing itself uh, kind of both at the same time. Um, I wondered if you could speak to that for a minute. I, I want to make sure I understood yes. you correctly.
1: Yes. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I love that passage in, um, in Lewis, um, yes. where he talks about how, <laughs> You, I mean, I'm like this, I have to admit. Yeah. I mean, if you say, do you enjoy astrophysics? Do you, are you interested in astronomy, astrophysics? I say, Absolutely. Yeah. And then you get me outside, even in a Wyoming sky and say, okay, start pointing out the constellations to me. I think I can get you to the North star, right? <laughs> um, and Lewis says that in, our ancestors would have been shocked by people who proclaim interest in astronomy. And astrophysics but then have no concrete realistic practical ability to do anything with it and nor do they know any of the old tales right all the, the like so why cassiopeia who's cassiopeia again yeah who's, Who are the pleiades <laughs> right we just we we're we're so this goes back to the car right yeah just as we blaze through space in a car and think that we're experiencing it but lewis says that um Our ancestors would have experienced more in a mile than we experienced in a hundred. Yeah. Analogously, we think that scientifically, the quantifiable, empirical rules, the laws of science are what's real. Mm -hmm. And this causes us to, in some sense, to turn the blind eye to the concrete embodiedness of objects around us, to people as well as sort of you know, creation. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: For Lewis, he thought that, you know, pre-modernity was the exact opposite, that they had all these. Trades, you know, they knew something about archery and they knew how to do it, and they knew something about how to uh, how to shape iron into and, to, and to shoes for horses, right? And they had touched these heavy objects, and what that means is when they talked about lofty ideals like judgment and virtue and chastity and courage and wisdom, that the heaviness. Of their actual daily embodied life, sort of rubbed off on the lightness of these ideals. And thus they possessed a kind of weight in the mind, Mm -hmm. which they don't for us. Yeah. We might say, you know, like, uh, you know, it's important to be, you know, uh, to practice prudence. Mm-hmm. We won't feel it like a sort of ghostly, abstract quality to which I can co- you know—correspond. Right. I think Lewis wants to say that, in some sense, these lofty ideal terms occupied a, um, occupied a daily, practical value in their lives and felt weighty because they were going from end to end of this spectrum of language.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's brilliant. And um, I I have just started reading Barfield for the first time in my life. Uh, He is admittedly kind of difficult to to wade into, but he's so hard. Oh yeah. Um, But from what I understand, this kind of gets close to what he meant by true metaphor. Uh, That's what I seem to be understanding this idea that that's a a holistic sort of uh, abstract concrete experience, um, you know, that we, we can kind of taste and know at the same time. And this goes back to i think lewis's theology of myth even that in a in a great myth we we have that tasting and knowing simultaneously uh rather than experience it as separate which is our dilemma right is what he says in myth became fact Mm -hmm. i'm starting to see a lot of these things kind of collide in lewis's writings and seeing where they uh, have some relevance Mm -hmm. elsewhere so thank you for explaining that um i i do also love the idea going back to dante that we expect those, those certain, you know, uh, luminous images and, you know, kind of uh, typical stereotypical images of heaven. And instead Dante gives us something we do not expect and really adds a, 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 a sort of taste of, yes. of heaven that we were not accustomed to getting, which is great. Um, yes. And I want to encourage anybody who picks up your book to pay very careful attention to this chapter, especially pages 92 and three, where you go through all of the similes all of the images that um, are just stacked yes. up and one of my favorite passages here uh i want to see if i get it on page 94 you say that toward the end of paradiso for example there's one scene in particular um the uh, is it the conti 30 and 31 yes um, that illustrates the medieval poets delight in stacking up image upon image creating i love this a kaleidoscopic poetry that gives a dizzying sensation of exhilaration that From the little I remember of of, of Dante, sadly, uh that's gonna change. Um is it seems correct to me. It just fits. There's no need to rephrase it. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Um, Yeah, I think it's 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 just uh, great. So I I hope people will benefit from that. I know we have a lot of Dante fans to listen in. So
1: well, so it's funny, it's funny, you know, not that we would need to turn this into a Dante conversation, even though I can point out you can see in my background, there's my statue of Lewis. there's my statue of Dante, so we kind of going from, from end to end. Yes. Um, but, I mean, it is funny that with, with Dante, in some sense, Dante gets his practice at trying to describe ineffable realities, mm-hmm. transpositional realities, we know we could call them, right? That right. higher language, trying to use my lower language. Dante gets his practice by writing about love, um, writing about the experience of the love of a, of, of a man and a woman. And everyone knows the sort of sensation of sort of like, you know, initially falling in love and trying to describe what it's like. Mm-hmm. And you find yourself saying really strange things, but also contradictory in order to indicate the intensity of it. You might say something like it's, it's like a, a cold fire or like mm-hmm. a good sickness or a dizziness, which is pleasant or something like that. But you find yourself image stacking, as I I use the term, right? Yeah. Stacking up metaphors, but also using them kaleidoscopically, as if if I stop on a single metaphor, people say, that's what love is like, perhaps I don't want it. And you say, no, 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 it's more like this, it's more like this, it's more like this, it's more like this. And we have this sort of desperate chase to touch this thing in itself, Mm -hmm. to touch this essence, to touch this uh, lovishness, Mm -hmm. right? And thus, we have to use this um, kaleidoscopic imagery to try to get at it. Right. So in my reading, Dante, the love poet, the young love poet in his 20s, becomes Dante, the sagacious, uh, you know, theological poet in his 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some sense, there's a beautiful sort of continuity throughout that. And if you think about our own Lewis, who begins his career writing The Allegory of Love, Mm -hmm. out this period of 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 writing and increasingly moves towards these sort of theological and you know miracles and kind of heavy epistemological meditations on the nature of god's relationship to the world Mm -hmm. lewis himself follows an exact trajectory that his own dante did
0: yeah that's uh, that's amazing um and, and uh this reminded me of something that slipped my mind. Oh gosh, it's, it's Dante related. I'm going to move on to the next topic. I'm sure it'll pop up back, pop back up. I can't speak. Uh, Let's move on to uh, the penultimate topic here. I wanted to ask you about Lucy uh, from the Chronicles of Narnia. I loved how you, you classified her as a mystic. Could you just speak for a few minutes on Lewis's uh, understanding of mysticism because that's sometimes a naughty word for some Christians and, you know, kind of smacks of new age. I don't think that's quite right. Um, and I think Lewis seems to capture what I've always felt intuitively that you put into words some things that uh, I've been struggling with myself. Could we speak to that? And then how is Lucy Pevensey kind of a mystic in the Chronicles of Narnia?
1: Yeah. Well, I have to say this was the one question I was the most afraid of. Oh, no. And so I've, uh, um, I'm going to have recourse to my my own book, uh, an introduction to Christian mysticism. It's funny, I've written a book on the subject, but when people just ask me a simple question, "What is mysticism?" I yeah. always freeze. But maybe yeah. that's a good response. I think so. Um, <laughs> here's what I say in that book, and 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 your readers will be able to hear echoes of this in the in the Lewis book. Mm-hmm. Mysticism is founded on the belief that every soul is made with an infinite desire that only an infinite bliss can satisfy. Mysticism believes that this infinite fountain for which our soul's thirst is God. But God cannot be contained within the creation he made, nor can he be comprehended fully within human language and rationality by which we represent that creation in our minds. Mm -hmm. Thus, mysticism is an ascent through rationality toward the edge of language, and when we have arrived at the periphery of language we walk over the edge and fall into the darkness of unknowing as Dionysius calls it, which is not ignorance, but a way of knowing that is higher and deeper than our customary rational consciousness. In other words, mysticism is made up of a learned ignorance mm. as Nicholas of Cusa calls it. Wow. I if that, that's man. mysticism in my read, Lucy is a mystic yeah. because she's restless. She's vigilant She can't sleep at night when all the other children, all the other children, not to their fault, are comfortable with just being good children and obeying the commands of Aslan, but not Lucy. She's hungry. She's vigilant. She's restless. She wants more. There's a good restlessness and there's a bad restlessness, but I think this is a kind of holy restlessness, an Augustinian restlessness, right? My hearts are restless until they rest in you. She's not content with mere goodness of external qualities, but wants to know the glory of Aslan intimately in the depth of her heart, and nothing else will satisfy. That's why I read Lucy as a mystic.
0: Yeah, and I think you comment, uh, wow, that, that's a the apophatic or apathetic uh, yes. quality, right? The the wordlessness, the
1: speechlessness of
0: mysticism. That's right.
1: Which that's right. Yeah, that apophatic quality, yeah, which we get a taste of even in our ordinary lives, right? Right. In loves, in loves of marriage and romance, mm. but also in loves with their own children, right? You have that sort of moment where the four-year-old's sitting on your lap and you're reading Beatrix Potter or whatever, right? When you just wanna hug that kid with all you've got, what, what are you after there? Yeah. You're after a kind of intimacy, which is elusive of language, uh, but now projected into that into the spiritual plane. Yeah. Um, Augustine in Confessions uses an amazing metaphor for it. He says, we want to nurse. It's our spiritual infant that wants to be at the, at the breast of divinity, drawing in its nourishment in this, in this way, which we hardly have language to describe. And this is funny because Augustine's a professional, uh, you know, you know, professor of rhetoric, right? So here's the professor of rhetoric, teaching people that the most eloquent thing in the world is a nursing infant.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember what I was going to say earlier. Now this kind of ties up Lucy and Dante, but the idea um, you've been kind of uh, talking about here—the the piling up of images and the inescapability of, um, or ine- inevitability of metaphorical language that we all have to resort to, especially when talking about the divine. Uh, you know, whether we're we're talking about it as a the Lion Aslan or, or or Christ Himself, that we we cannot state you know, God apart from metaphor, it seems like that's the best way of of groping towards him and understanding him, but it also reveals how dependent we are on him for his revelation and our inability to know things in themselves, uh, you know, without his help. And I I love that. I think it's a a clue in our own language, the nature of our own language that people overlook all the time.
1: And I think that, and that's related to one of the things that you mentioned to me in the list of questions, Yeah. right? Why is, Um, why is Lewis kind of constantly warning people off of mysticism, even though, as I argue, and David Downing has argued, it's kind of his spiritual DNA.
0: Yeah,
1: Uh, Lewis is Lucy. Those are the kind of deep hungers that he has, right? And if you look just at the very end of Four Loves, right, talking about love for God, there's a glorious paragraph. Mm -hmm. But then Lewis kind of sweats it away really quickly and wants to go back. I think it's in part because he's worried about um, these, you know, us thinking about God as some sort of like spiritual black hole, right? right. Or the force in the universe, right? Which mm-hmm. doesn't make any demands. But the reality is, Christianity is complicated. yeah. And that elusive God who's beyond my language, also decided to be born as a, a tiny infant and be held in the arms of human parents. Yep. So I think for, Lu- for, for Lewis, it's very important in our efforts to recover the Transcendent majesty of God, not to overcompensate and forget the positive aspects. You remember those funny moments, right, in which doubters are sometimes brushed with the whiskers of Aslan, right? Mm-hmm. They they want to talk about right the um, the majesty of Aslan. You now we must be a great king, yeah. but then all of a sudden there's Aslan in the concrete flesh pursuing him in particular. Yep. I think that's in part why Lewis feels he has to create a um, a safeguard around mysticism. Because the negatives can never be taken exclusively without, in Christianity, this extraordinary positive quality.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a, at its heart as a paradox, and and many paradoxes flowing outwards from the incarnation, I think, and and that's what makes uh, wrestling with Christianity difficult but rewarding, deeply rewarding. And, yes. and speaking speaking of that, as we round out um, an interview that I, I wish we could continue much longer. Uh, We'll have to have you back on the show and maybe focus on a few of these. But um, we've tasted quite a few chapters out of Dr. Baxter's book here, but there's nothing like picking it up for yourself. I want to remind you all again, you can get it on his website. It'll be in the show notes. You can get a signed copy that he's uh, kind enough to send to you. So uh, please look into doing that. Before we conclude, though, um, could you tell us a little bit about your conclusion in your book? Because I enjoyed what you meant. um, Well, I think I understood what you meant by nostalgia for the future. And I'd like to finish on that uh, because I thought that was a very powerful way to end your book. So, what do you mean by this? Um, I guess also, what is Lewis kind of getting at here? Because um, that's what you say that he kind of had, if I understood you correctly.
1: Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, something again that, you know, is seemingly the Inklings had these conversations among themselves. And of course, they all love old books. Tolkien loved even older books than Lewis did, right? Lewis's books look all modern and progressive in contrast to Tolkien's books. Mm-hmm. But they all felt that antiquity, and this is especially when you read it in its strange, original, difficult language. They all felt that a- ancient text had a had a sense of draw, had a sense of uh, of eternity resting on them, sort of you know go- covered in gold and dust, and they loved that quality. But as Tolkien began to put it to himself, it's not so much their antiquity, but it's a kind of like or antiquity. It's something which is older than old age, something which is older than antiquity, something which is underneath trying to express itself, but the ancients were, were closer to it, but not necessarily because they were older. If that's the sort of quality which exists in presence, but best express itself in antiquity, it's not really in time, though. That's what I was trying to get at with this sort of nostalgia for the future. I think it's kind of, you know, a way of trying to address this interesting question of if these things were not factually or scientifically true, why do we read them?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Well, we read them because they, in their own way, metaphorically, mythologically, symbolically, iconically, we're trying to touch this antiquity, which is older than antiquity. Mm. right this this beauty as augustine puts it which is ever ancient ever new mm. and that in that way even though the old text you know might have been encumbered with some literal or, or scientific mistakes nevertheless what they felt behind all of it yeah. was will ultimately be revealed in future glory as as tolkien puts it in a moment of revelation, which will be so great, we can only call it a you catastrophe yeah. a great catastrophe, a catastrophe of benevolence, a mm-hmm. catastrophe of mercy, right? A catastrophe of, of, of glory. Mm-hmm. And that, that is what they all hungered for in their old text. But you could think about it as, a, in my paradoxical phrase, nostalgia for the future.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um, that, that's that's something I hope uh, all of us learn to get in touch with. I think it's a hunger that exists within all of us, but uh, needs to often be stirred and awakened by great literature. And uh, we've just touched the the tip of uh, the iceberg of that topic. I hope to have you back on the show to do more of that in the future. It'll be thank fun. You. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for talking to us about your book. I'll have more information on this and where you can get it, uh, among uh, other uh, other facts in the show notes. So thank you, Doctor ba- Doctor Baxter, for joining me today.
1: It's been a delight. Thanks so much for the invitation.
0: We'll see you next time on The Mission, folks. Thank you for listening and watching.